This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Professor Evan Mareels is from IBM. Since early this year, Evan Mareels has been the lab director for IBM Research in Australia. He's also an honorary professor at the University of Melbourne. Prior to this, he was Dean of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. And his keynote address this morning, Convergence of Engineering, IT and Clinical Practice, Opportunities and Challenges. Please make him welcome. Thank you very much. Oh, what, a, what a great talk we just had. Um, Jeremy has already said a few things that I wanted to say as well, but given that communication and education is only uh, helped by repetition, I hope you won't mind. Uh, so I'm actually about collaboration. So where Jeremy ended, I would like to start. Convergence of science, engineering, IT, working together with clinical practice to make a difference, to make a difference to people. And, it's not a new idea, we've been promoting it in Melbourne for a long time, but I believe there are some real opportunities here and also some challenges. First, I'd like to come back to the, the organizers and say, great uh, symposium, we love it. Uh, population too personal, I'd like to say it's personal and population. I'd like to be treated as a person when I go to see the doctor, but I'm sure that if the doctor only sees me, they have a very poor life. And I'm very happy that a lot of people go to see the doctor and that we have a population to understand so that they know what to do when I see them. It will always be population and personal in order to make medicine to work. And as a shameless plug for my own discipline, I'm an engineer, so I'm a little bit different from uh, the training that most people have here. Um, systems engineering is something that I see lacking in this space. Not to make it all a structured organization, but to make it in a way that it's actually compatible and works together, and that all the pieces come together in a way that actually amplifies them rather than detracts from one another. I don't see that actually happening right now in the system, in healthcare. My key message is, first of all, convergence is not new. It has been part of medicine forever and a day, and you already saw some nice examples out of Jeremy's talk today, how, how people have thought about these things, and I'll give you a few more. Uh, I'm a very strong believer in there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, that's a very old saying. If you want a more modern saying, Sir Victor Berry, uh, still alive with us, nothing is ever invented for the first time. And it's absolutely true in this space as well. And convergence science, although it's a modern term, uh, it's certainly something that has been with us ever, forever actually, in medicine. Uh, some of the opportunities I see today for us in technology and in this collaboration is that with bringing the devices to the person, the ubiquity of devices, the dipsticks we just talked about, will make a significant shift on where we can make diagnostics. We'll be able to get the data at a rate that is inconceivable at present, which scares me as an engineer as well, what we're we going to do with it. But it also will bring overload, and with artificial intelligence and computational mechanisms that are also becoming more available, we'll be able to do something with this data and put it in the hands of decision makers. And I mean all decision makers, the consumer as well as the medical doctors as well as the systems, at the right time, at the right place, so that they don't get overloaded by data, which don't contain any information until you've distracted anyway. So to augment human decision-making. And I don't want to make people coming out of the loop. This is a very personal affair, uh, medicine and private practice. We're never going to take people out of the loop there. 
that cottage industry in medicine I don't quite get, but it's, it works. And I do believe that can revolutionize how we go about personalizing the medicine for all of us. There are some challenges, though. And the challenge is essentially complexity. And you've heard a lot from Jeremy about that, but in fact, if I look at this problem from a purely statistical point of view, then I have to say you will never have a large data problem. Your problem is always a small data. You will never have enough data to answer the questions that you have. As practitioner, you will always have to live with uncertainty and you will always have to make judgment calls. It's simply not possible to understand the interaction between the genome, the phenotype, at the level that is necessary with the interaction between the human and the non-human genome that is actually fundamental to the way we live and how we are healthy. Exactly what Jeremy was talking about. Not knowing the answer will be okay, because in some cases you will never know the answer. In fact, the population of the humanity over the entire history and the entire future to come will never be enough to be able to see all the instances possible of what actually can be done in the complexity space. So from a complexity point of view, we're on the losing side. But we need understanding, and that's one way of breaking down complexity. So because of this small data problem, we have created a large data problem. We are measuring everything that we possibly can lay our hands on, and it becomes a very big problem from an engineering point of view. Every 70 days, you double the amount of information data that's available in this space. Every 70 days. That's six times faster than the internet grows at this point in time. That requires new tools of being able to curate this data, understand this data, new tools in AI to be able to make sense out of it. Even new mathematics are being invented in this space. Because normally statistics is about large data problems where you have more data than what you need. Here you have less data than what you need. You also need a completely new skill set. So we'll have to retrain a new generation of professionals to work in this space. And I think it will be about coordination, having data science, working together with clinicians, working together with nurses, working together with scientists in this space. It won't be just seeing one person in order to be able to understand what health is about. Too much reinventing of the wheel. I don't like seeing that. I'd like to see people working together and amplifying the effort because we'll need it for the, these problems. So a little bit about nothing invested for the first time, three examples. Uh, if you look at the pacemaker, Dr. Olina wrote a very nice history of the pacemaker. You can trace this back all the way to a few hundred years before Christ, when Romans actually were trying electric eels on bodies. Not the greatest way to stop a heart or to start one, but they actually were doing it. In 1640, we already had some examples of how this may work, and the very first time someone was actually offering the idea of using electric signals to stop and start the heart was in the Royal Society in 1774. It took a while before engineers got there, uh, and actually it was a, a surgeon in, in Sydney, Mark Liddell, who built the first uh, pacemaker for uh, a lady in, in, uh, in the hospital in 1926, and then Rune Unquist did the same in Karolinska in 1958. That was an implantable device, and you know what you can do now with defibrillators. I'd like to give an example of a woman. That was on my slide before you mentioned it. Uh, Florence Nightingale, a nurse, statistician, and I actually think she was a fantastic statistician. Uh, she went uh, volunteering to the Crimean battlefield. The Crimean battlefield, 1.6 million soldiers were set up by the British Empire, the Turkish Empire. 900,000 did not come back. Only 100,000 died in the battle. 800,000 died because of 
bad living and bad medical treatment. She investigated that she could convince the Admiralty at that time to change the way they were treating people on the battlefield. Artificial intelligence coming closer to home, uh, that's basically where IBM lives essentially, uh, goes back to 1756 to Reverend Bayes, who posthumously published, well, his friend published it, uh, the Bayes rule by which we live. A long time ago. After that, we have Weierstrass and Stone who are bringing up a theorem saying how we can approximate anything that we see around us through specific functions. 1885. 1943, MIT, we invent neural networks. Later on, we start learning with neural networks from data, 1960. And all the technology that we even use today in artificial intelligence, deep learning, etc., are all using those algorithms from the 1960s. The only thing we have been able to do is actually to make them faster, more reliable, and take the guesswork out of it so that we can put the tools in everybody's hands with relative ease. Sometimes not the greatest thing to do, but it works. And of course, graphical processing units, NVIDIA in particular, 1999, gave us the tools to be able to do the supercomputer work in basically your, in your hands. Essentially, your phone could do uh, really fast supercomputing work nowadays. I'd like to talk a little bit about epilepsy as a particular aspect of interest, personal interest as well as what we're doing in IBM research in Australia. Uh, epilepsy affects about 1% of the population, so it's a fairly large uh, brain disorder. About 250,000 people in Australia, and it's very likely that every one of you know at least one person that is affected by epilepsy. And it's a very debilitating disease from a behavioral point of view. The bad part is that for half of these people, we have absolutely no clue why they actually have seizures. That shouldn't surprise us. The brain is the ultimate organ, and as an engineer, I just wished I knew how it worked. As an educator, I wished I knew how it worked because it would allow us to educate so much better than what we can do now. But we don't know how the brain works, so it's still a very big ongoing project. So not only don't we know what it, why they have seizures, for many of them, for a third, actually, we don't know how to treat them, refractory epilepsy. How we diagnose it for the moment is always done by uh, EEG, essentially, but also by lots of observations, and particularly in bad cases, we bring people in hospitals for weeks on end and observe them, see what actually we can do about it, and sometimes we then take a piece of their brain away. See there a little girl with a typical cap on and some of the signals. When the signals go bananas in the middle there, very large amplitude, looks a bit regular. That's actually when the epilepsy event is on, and at that time, the brain doesn't really function. That is great. Uh, it at least tells you what's going on in the brain to some extent. Uh, you also see there a skull. That's actually an electrode system that is placed inside the brain, in the, inside the skull, on top of the brain, which gives you a, a lot more specificity and a lot more understanding of how these things are being generated. And also gives you the opportunity to do something about it electrically. By closing a loop, you could actually inject electrical signals and then stop these seizures from occurring or spreading. And that's one of the things we're trying to do. So, how to make this more accessible and more better for people? We're looking at developing, well, it's almost data in clinical trials, uh, all the data that we can bring together about a person of how they live and how they experience seizures. And most of the seizures are actually unreported. People don't actually know, even their environment doesn't know that they actually had an, uh, uh, an epilepsy event just by observing them on the outside. So having EEG available 
implantable devices uh, or just skin devices, sleep data, heart rate, all the data we can bring together, also how you eat, what sport you do and so on, bring that together in a, a digital format, try to understand it and make it totally specific. Every epilepsy is different, your epilepsy is different from your neighbors. Make a model that can predict for that particular patient under their normal circumstances how they get an epileptic event is the target here. And that model changes over time. So the models that we develop, the AI that is behind that, is actually evolving with the patient, evolving and tracking how their epilepsies occur. And that data is then digested, compressed and then presented to clinical management so that they can make the best decisions on how to treat that particular case. Whether they're going to go for an implant, whether they're going to go for medical treatment, whether they're going to change their diet. All of these options are available and actually make a difference to bring that under one roof. That's what this project is all about. And as I said, just in clinical trials now in Melbourne. So what is a data challenge? Uh, that's one part of the challenge I want to bring up. By 2025, typical person will have about 300 terabytes available. That's 300 million books of 100 pages each. That's your natural record over your lifetime. If you put it in the United States, at this point in time, it's one zettabyte, and I'll explain what the zettabyte is in a second, but that's a lot. Uh, 10 with 21, uh, zeros, uh, one with 10, 21 zeros behind it. So, if you want to try to understand all of this data, and in principle, that's what we should be doing, right? Use all the data that's available to make decisions. That's actually a non-trivial undertaking. And that will require a lot more mathematics and IT to be able to really steer it properly. Um, but I do think it will bring a new era of convergence along, and it will give us an unprecedented understanding of what can and what can't be done, and how we can actually treat people in the best possible way. So just for that zettabyte, what that actually is. When 2015, all the internet traffic, the entire volume of the entire world, was just under a zettabyte. At this point in time, we're about five zettabyte. If you wanted to quote a zettabyte, and you had a pen, and you had the ability to put uh, a mark on one square millimeter, that's pretty small, but you can do it by hand, you needed the entire surface of the Earth to be able to write out a zettabyte. If you wanted to do it on land, you needed 20 bits per square millimeter. Luckily, we don't have you to do that. We can do that by computers. And in the world record that for the moment IBM and Sony hold, we can do this on a 3,000 kilometer one inch tape. And um, if you then put it all together, you need about 10 tons of tape drives and it's all done. It's one shipping container, basically. Uh, what can you actually do with this? Well, if you just wanted to read it with your regular computer, it would take 100 years to read that entire set of data. Uh, that's not that easy to work with. If you wanted to do it on an internet link, and 10 times better than the NBN can give you, it would only take you 31,000 years to go from one side to the other side. So it's not an ob obvious way to do it. If you want to get this data to New York, put it in a container and ship it by 747, it's much faster and much less energy. Uh, if you were Google and you had 60 terabytes per second available to you on a single cable, which they do have between LA and, and Melbourne, that would take still half a year to get that <coughs> data over the transatlantic and still cost more energy than the 747. However, <coughs> if you wanted to do it for everybody, 
300 million uh, by, uh, books, basically. Then you need 3,000 zettabytes. You need three yottabytes in the world to be able to do that. So 3,000 shipping containers. We can store it, but you can see how difficult it will be actually to find anything in that data and do anything with that data. That's where the new maths and new engineering comes into play. What is scary in this fact is that medical data records grow six times faster than anything else in the internet. And so this is actually a bottleneck right now already to try to work with it. And so if anybody wants to do anything about the NBN, please tell them that this is coming. <laughs> I know. I tear my hair out as an engineer. So if you want to probe a bit further and what AI can do and how it changes the economy and why health actually lags in this space, there is a significant uh, lagging between the health sector and, say, other parts of the industry sector. Uh, have a look at the McKinsey Global Institute report, Notes from the AI Frontier from this year. It's fantastic reading. It tells you a little bit about why and what the issues are. About epilepsy, a few references there, including some of my own work. And if you want to look a little bit more what Watson is doing in this space, Watson Health gives you also some oncology and dermatology as well. I would like to come down on the last issue about the skill set. Is there anything that you could do to make medicine better? Can you tell the girls to learn STEM? I'm putting in my head on as a dean of engineering. There are not enough people doing engineering, not enough people doing science, not enough people doing mathematics. The people lacking in action are women. We almost have the boys as in the right proportion, but we lose almost all the girls. There are less than 20% women in the STEM fields in, in, in Australia, it's actually 15%. So 45% of them are missing in action. Please, if you have something to do and you want to take home and you can make a difference, tell a girl that is in high school, maths is a solution to your future employment. It's absolutely true. Thank you. Thank you.